Welcome to another episode of Local First Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Kohansky. Uh, welcome today. I'm very excited because we have a Olympian here, and she is an American short track speed skater. She is a two-time medalist, one silver, one bronze in the 2010 Winter Olympics. She's also the owner of Fix Your Mindset, Performance Mindset and Coaching. Let me welcome Catherine Adamick. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing awesome. So thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be in on Local First Podcast. This is really going to be an exciting story. You know, we're really going to get down into it, talk about your story and who you are and, you know, some of the challenges, successes, and then we'll get a little bit into your coaching as well. How does that sound? That sounds great. Awesome. All right. So let us let the uh, the listeners. You know, what's your story? You know, how did you get to where you are? Let's you know start about you know, um, how did you become an Olympian? You know, what did that take? Well, I'll tell you um, a widely known but little practice secret. It takes a really big goal, um, a lot of perseverance, and baby steps daily, and that's. That's all that it takes. Now, putting that into practice is significantly harder than that sounds. Um, but truly, my family inspired me from a young age to believe, to truly and deeply believe that I could do anything that I set my mind to. Um, and from there, it was simply not giving up when the going got tough and baby steps daily. Baby steps daily. So that that ties into the book we read last month at our book club. It was, you know, uh, 1% better every day. And the compound effect behind it mm -hmm. that gets you to where you want to go. Absolutely. I mean, so I do a lot of coaching now. I do my performance mindset coaching, but I also work with the Milwaukee Junior Admirals over at the Pettit National Ice Center. And I've got a group of, a group of 15 year old boys that I coach every week. And uh, every time we talk about how are we going to win state this year, you know, there's this the, the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, we got to be perfect. We just got to be perfect. And that's my opportunity as a coach to step in and say, wait a minute. What if you take perfect off the table, but instead you just did one thing better every single day between now and then? Would that be enough? And, you know, everybody kind of pauses and looks at each other and all they nod in agreement. And they're like, yeah, yeah. What if we could just be a little bit every day, every right? Day, and yeah. like how much how much more exciting and motivating does that feel than the alternative, which is like, well, I just have to be perfect all the time, which you've, you've failed before you've even started. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it's a wonderful mindset. It's a great way to live. It's it's challenging, but all, as, as such is life, right? No doubt. No doubt. We all fail to get better, right? Absolutely. So. Take me through your journey to, you know, of becoming, you know, what got you into, you know, uh, you know, being a skater, a short track skater and, you know, you know, versus, you know, you know, I saw part of your story, you know, being out there on, on the ice, just going out there and playing around versus, you know, wanting to get fast and going around there, you know, what, what drove you to you do all that work to actually become an Olympian in 2010? Yeah, I think that the biggest thing that helped me get to where I, I got to be in 2010 was that um, from a very young age, I really loved speed skating. I, I remember my first day on the ice. I remember being in my pink tights and my pink tutu because I came over from figure skating. <laughs> and the reason that the memory sticks out so much to me is that I remember my first coach, his name was Bruce Merrill, and I remember him saying, you, you're not a speed skater. You look like a figure skater. And I was like... I I will show you. And I was just this spunky little five-year-old that couldn't wait to prove this guy wrong, right? Like I just, um, from that moment, I felt 
determined to show up in my real skin suit and my real speed skates next week and start showing all these people what a real speed skater looks like. And uh, I have no idea why that called so intensely to me at such a young age, but I remember having a fire in my belly to figure this out from day one. Explain to the listeners, you know, what's what type of work that you had to put in to get to that level of athlete and the type of support that you had around you at that yeah. time. So I'll give you like a really fast spark notes version because sure. um, it was a lifetime of work, right? So from the beginning, um, when I'd say before age 10, we were just looking at my parents driving me to the rink a couple times a week, but usually before school would start. So we'd have like five or 6 a.m. Um, practices. Where did you train? In, uh, at the University of Illinois Ice Arena. I grew okay. up in Champaign-Urbana. Uh, my mom was a professor at the University of Illinois, so we kind of spent a fair bit of time on campus. Um, and so it started just with that, right? Like a couple days a week, we'd drive all around town to get more ice time or more training from different coaches. And then as I started getting into high school, um, I'd train a few more days a week, mostly with my dad at the gym or down in our basement on like, uh, we had this slide board, which was actually Bonnie Blair's old slide board. Cause she came from my same club. Um, and so that was a lot of work just with my dad and I being willing to do the training outside of the rink that was necessary. Eventually we started having to drive down to St. Louis, which is about three hours from Champaign. So we would do that twice a week. The whole family would pile in the car, drive three hours to get two hours of ice time and then drive three hours back. Um, we were I, 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 why did you go to say, go south versus coming up to the Pettit Center? Um, well, mostly just the coaches that were down south. Okay. I wasn't very good growing up. I, I really, I don't, I wasn't a good, I wouldn't consider myself a good speed skater uh, until I was probably 16 or so. And so at a young age, I didn't stand out. It was hard for me to get the attention that I needed to improve. And so we had to be really careful about going to coaches who were legitimately in my corner as a person and who were friends with my family. Um, because when we came up North, it was kind of like, I just, I got crowded out. I wasn't good enough to keep up. So I didn't get the coaching that I needed to get better. So we were very purposeful about choosing environments that I could thrive in. Um, and so we went down to St. Louis after a couple of years of that, I qualified to move to Marquette, Michigan, and I was still in high school. I was 16, but I was training with college age athletes on the Northern Michigan university campus, living in their dorms away from home. And that is when speed skating got real. That is when daily I would have to ask myself, are you are you really willing to do this? Are you willing to call home crying twice a day, so homesick, no friends, picked on by your teammates, can't keep up with anybody, right? Like by far the slowest one there. Um, and so I'd won my first national championships that year in my age group, but it's it was like, okay, well, you won at the 16 level, so let's go put you with a bunch of 20 and 25-year-olds and see if you can keep up with them, which... I don't think I embarrassed myself, but I certainly couldn't keep up. I had so much work to do to, in order to train at that level. Um, and so I did that for a couple of years. Um, even through all the struggle, I would, again, I really would call home crying twice a day. But, you know, that makes you better competing against that level at that age. Oh, yeah. And I, I think it takes a lot of a lot of guts, but a lot inside your head to be able to, to compete with that because that's a lot of pressure, especially on, on a young person like yourself, to be able to deal with that. Yeah, and I'll tell you, for as hard as it was, the life lesson that made me a better person because of it was the ability to look at how much of a struggle this was going to be and then decide, 
am I willing to push through this? And am I willing to push through this in a way that I get something out of it? Because I've seen so many athletes in my years in athletics that get to that level, find out how hard it is, and they stay, but they never adapt to the point where they really make it worth their while. They make all that sacrifice worth it. And that was a choice that I still am thankful that I had to make to this day because there's a, a mindset strategy called embrace the suck. And the idea is that until you, and I'm sure you know this with your background, until you understand or at least accept the point that like, hey, this sucks, now move forward. Instead of wallowing in that suck and just replaying it in your mind over and over again, and that, those couple of years of my life, they they really sucked. But what are you going to do? Are you going to just sit around and be sad about it and let it affect you being the best person you can be? Or are you going to say, there's nothing I can do except keep trying baby steps daily, right? And you just you, you, you have, have to. to. And, and that's a great lesson to learn, especially at a young age, if you can, is that you're going to go through times that are going to be tough. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about your story, when you went up you know, to Upper or Michigan and, and you were all alone and all that, that brought me back to basic training when I was in the army. Mm -hmm. And I would cry home and like, get me the out of uh -huh. here. <laughs> this is crazy. Why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. But you, you just got, you got to drive through it and just keep pushing yourself and keep pushing yourself. And then, and you grow so much from that, that you can take away, but you got to be willing to push through it and not give up. Yeah, and and I, I have you know I have a mantra. I was like, I will never quit. Mm -hmm. Tell me something I can't do, and I'll prove you wrong. Yeah, you know, and that's just, I'll fail a thousand times, but I'll I'll get there. Yeah, you know, so that that was really cool. So keep on going with your story. Yeah. I mean, that you know, and then you're talking about some of the biggest challenges that you've had up there. You know, so where did you go from uh, Michigan? So after two years in Michigan, I qualified to move to Salt Lake City, which is where the national team was. And I remember still, I remember that first day that I was there and I went to the head coach. We were all new. The entire program had just moved to Salt Lake from Colorado Springs. And I went up to the head coach and just said, hey, I promise to do everything that you ask me to do to the best of my ability with the most positive attitude that I can muster. But you have to promise to be in my corner on the days that I can't. Because I've been in situations where coach, where coaches um, don't do what's right for their athlete. They do what looks best for them as a coach. They, they do what's best for the team. But sometimes that means sacrificing an individual. And I'd lived through that. I'd been the person that kind of got thrown to the wolves when the team needed a hard workout, but it was going to literally put me into a mode of overtraining that day. And I didn't have coaches in the past who like had my back. And so I told this coach, I'll do, I'll do anything you need me to do the best I can with a great attitude, but you need to be in my corner when I need you. And he, we had from day one, we had that agreement. He said, heck yes. Like what else could I possibly ask for in an athlete? And, um, and that was that was one of the best coach athlete relationships that I've had. Just knowing every day that I could push myself, knowing that someone was going to let me know that it was okay when I'd reached a point of that's enough. Because you know this, right? When you're mentally at this point where you're like, I will not give up. Period. Eventually, you're going to hurt yourself, whether right. that's emotionally or physically. You are going to get hurt, and you need someone who can help you pump the brakes. And knowing that he was going to be that person for me, um, I, I pushed him when he was tired, and he pushed me when I was tired, and we both gave each other a break when it was time to take a break. And we did great work and baby steps daily, and we went to the Olympics. What What did a um – a day in the life of your training and when did it's like 
Give, walk me through, you know, what happened when you started in the morning to, you know, when you stopped, you know, was it like, I can't imagine, you know, what you did in an entire in one day. Right. Well, I'll tell you kind of when you're in training at the highest volume of the entire season, which usually happens in the summer, um, we would get to the rink by eight. I'd usually do start my warm up even at home with just some foam rolling and activation exercises yeah. to work out all the kinks. You show up at eight. You have on your own warm up time until eight twenty. You have team workout time from eight twenty to eight forty. You are on the ice at nine o'clock. We have one workout from nine to nine fifty. Ten minute resurface break. Another workout from ten to ten fifty. Um, and then we're off the ice starting dry land. Um, let's see, if we're off at 11, we're probably starting dry land around 11.15 or 11.30. And then we'd have team training until 12.30. You get about a three-hour break. You get to go home and eat your lunch and take a nap. And we'd be back um, anywhere between 2.30 and 3.30. And then the, the afternoon's where it would get crazy. Like if morning sounded crazy, afternoon's double crazy because we'd be on the ice from 3 to 4.30. And then we'd get off and do a dry land workout. And then after that, we would do a, a set of bike intervals and – because I'm really tall for my sport, I'm five seven, and mo that's that's tall for a short track really? speed skater. Yeah, okay. so I had to be more lean than my competitors who were five two and five three. Um, so I I always had extra cardio every day, um, which broke my heart. But hey, you got to do what you got to do to be at the most elite you know, space for your sport. Um, and so by the end of all that, it would usually be around six thirty when I'd go down and see the athletic trainer hit the ice bath, um, be home by seven, make myself dinner and go to Good bed. Crash, right? <laughs> yeah. There, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Throughout that whole process of, uh, you know, getting to, let's, you know, start getting into, you know, where you started to train for the Olympics and getting to that particular point, who's been like one of your biggest supporters or mentors throughout the entire time? That's a good question. I mean, I would, I would have to say that my parents are the ones who have always been there for me. Um, the thing about, I think it's like this at elite level of all sports, but I, from my experience from an individual sport feels especially strong that sometimes it's a really lonely path. And I, I know in my life I've have, I've had people in my corner, but when you're down, like really down, you don't want to show people how much you're hurting, even if it's your mom, even if it's, you know, like my, I had a high school mentor named coach Mac, who was always incredibly there for me, but these people who believe in you, you don't want to show them that you're weak. And so I, t to be honest, I had people in my corner that I'm very grateful for, but I also felt a really intense sense of pressure to pick myself up and keep going. Um, I wouldn't recommend that, right? If you're, if, if any listener out there is an athlete or even just a small business owner or a new parent, anything, anything that's hard, please call people in your life. Like people love to help. I, anybody that asks me for help, I'm like, heck yes, thank for, thanks for asking. Um, but at the time I just felt too proud to admit that I needed help. And so I just kind of head down, keep going. That was my that was my life. It's important to reach out, especially when you're in those tough times. And I've, I've been in that situation myself, not at that level, but you do have to reach out at times when you're at that point. Cause I, I'm that type of person too, is like, I have to push and push and push and push. And then sometimes my wife will be like, well, what's wrong? And she should be the first person I'm going to. Mm -hmm. And then she, she'll tell me, it's like, I can't help you unless you tell me what's going on and yeah. how I can help you. Yeah. And it's so key. Um, just earlier today, I was speaking with interviewing uh, David 
uh, Lardinas from uh, American Cancer Society, and we talk about that quite a bit about reaching out to people and just their support out there for you. Yeah. At every level. Yeah. Any, well, I think we can go back uh, to what we talked about in the very beginning, that perfect isn't real. It's, it's a great idea in your mind, but it's not a real true destination. It's something that we strive for, and that strive for perfection is what makes life fun. But the destination isn't real. And so that is what helped me eventually figure out that I don't need to put on this facade of perfect Someone who's like air quotes, perfect, doesn't need help, but perfect isn't real. And it's okay to say, hey, I'm not perfect today. And actually I'm super overwhelmed. You know, an additional part of that is when you're coming off of a really high high, a low is natural. A low should be expected, but to try to hole up and get in that depressive state of low after a high, when there's this other option to say like, I have a lot of great things in my life, but for every up, there's an equal down. And so I can be surrounding myself with people at this time to get me through that instead of just refusing to move on and continuing to try to be perfect. Okay. I, that, I agree with you a hundred percent on that. And that's, that's, that's so key that people have to remind themselves about that. So, okay, let's get into your, you're in Salt Lake City. So how does that process go from you're there, you're training, you're doing this on a daily basis, now you're in Vancouver? Mm-hmm. How does that feel like? I mean, what, I mean, describe that feeling. I can, I can, I see it on TV, and I you know I've had similar but different experiences where I have those goosebumps on my skin because I'm in an event or I'm doing something like that. But I don't know at that level. So I mean, explain that you know as you're coming in Vancouver and and that experience. Yeah. So as a person, it was incredibly eye-opening to be a part of a group of people, to be a part of an environment. And I'm talking about the entire city of Vancouver. Everywhere you went, the energy was palpable. You could feel Olympic spirit everywhere that you went. And people had, you'd go out to restaurants or, or just out in the city and there'd be jackets and hats from every single country and everyone's visiting, everyone's talking, everyone's sharing Olympic stories and pins and pictures. And um, so it's very rare that you get to see on a massive level, all different people coming together in the camaraderie of sport. And that that's an energy that I have never felt since then. Did you get to trade some pins with other people from different countries? I did, yeah. I, I, I think I gave most of them to my mom because she keeps them on display at her house. Um, but that that's a big thing, right, is to go and to get all the pins. And, you know, and, trade from different athletes. Mm-hmm, yeah. Absolutely. Um, as a competitor, it was the it was probably the most anxious two weeks of my life because it's every, every minute of every day. It truly, even though perfect isn't real, you have to be as close to perfect as possible and knowing full well that, I mean, at that point, um, I had, I had plenty of good world cup finishes at that point. I think I was going into the games ranked third in the 1500 and second in the thousand meter. And so I had all the things I needed to feel confident in my performance. But at the games, literally anything happens. You know, other competitors who I thought were shoe-ins for a medal were getting bumped out in the quarterfinals. Um, And so that's something that I felt was really important to be prepared for, that on the one hand, you know, you need to find some form of normalcy in that I know these competitors, I know these distances, like it's just another race. At the same time, recognizing that this is a massive stage and there's no room for error. There's not, you have to be perfect today. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm 
obviously it worked, right? Like I'm, I'm really happy that yeah. it worked out, but <laughs> the amount of mental effort that went into managing every moment of every day to make sure that it worked out perfectly. Did you have a coach exhausting. or support during that time to, you know, calm those nerves down and just really just be laser focused on task at hand? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think we had like 11 staff members there because um, the USOC does a great job of making sure the athletes get all the support they need at the games. Um, and I remember going into the last day of racing, it was the thousand meter, which was my best distance. Um, and I'd had other distances I'd hoped to win an individual medal in, but I, I underperformed on those days. Um, and so this is the last opportunity of the games I had for an individual medal. And I was an absolute wreck. And I went to my sports psych and she said, Catherine, the games are going to be over. And as a matter of fact, they're going to be over in just a couple hours from now. And the only thing that you can control about that is how you is how you carry yourself between now and then. And so you need to make sure you go to the ring today and carry yourself in a way that you're proud of with or without a medal. And she really set me straight in that moment. She made me realize that I was, you know, maybe a little too attached to having things the way that I wanted, getting a little too caught up in what others expected of me and really challenged me in the perfect way to come back to my process, to trust myself and um, just to make sure that I'm proud. Because there's, I, I think most listeners can probably relate. There have been really stressful times in my life that I didn't handle myself properly. And I look back on that and think, not only did I not get what I wanted, but I didn't act, you know, in a way that's consistent with my values and beliefs either. And that hurts. That hurts my feelings to think back on those times. But to have responded to her coaching that day and carried myself in a way that I was proud of and also get a medal, that was a, a wonderful learning experience for me. So I, I, when you said that, you just had this big shitting green <laughs> on your face. So what was it like to stand on a podium? Oh, uh, man, I... So you think that you know what it's going to feel like, and then you get up there, and it's it's infinitely better than anything you ever dreamed of. Um, and I, the biggest thing I remember is just how many fans were there screaming. I remember finding my family in the audience and tossing my bouquet to my little cousin uh, who was there and just – I can't, there's no words for it. It's, it's one of those things where the, a picture, a picture is worth a thousand words. Yeah. And I think on YouTube, there's um, like a celebration, a, a clip of just how crazy I was celebrating, but there's no words. It's just this, you know what it feels like is you, you exhale a breath that you didn't know you were holding for a good 20 years. And you didn't know that you were so stressed and so anxious and that so much was riding on this moment. And then you get there and you get to let go of that breath you've been holding and the whole weight of the world lifts off your shoulders and you're just happy. And that's, it was a very good moment. That is so cool. So what I'm going to do now is that uh, we're going to turn this into a two-part series. Uh, for those that are listening, normally we go into some different topics, uh, but stay tuned for part two. And we're going to talk about coming out of the Olympics and what it's like going through all of that, being on the podium, and then coming back to the civilian life.